Good evening everyone, the time is 8pm on Monday the 27th of May and you are listening to The Late Show with me, Emily Florencio on Teacher Talk Radio. In today's show I'll be joined by Carly Waterman, I'm really excited and we will be discussing sceptical research, really really excited for this. As always please share the show and interact with us. Hello everyone and good evening. Hopefully you had an easy journey back home, you know, with all the petrol shortages. Um, My journey was fairly okay. However, I did see a lot of build-up of traffic um, on the way home due to lots of people trying to get there. But luckily for me, everything was great. Um, As always, please do share the show and interact with us via the chat or feel free to call in at any time and, um, you know, we can answer your questions. And let's have a real discussion. I'm really, really excited today. We've got Carly Waterman, and she has spoken in events such as Research Ed. And one thing I'm really excited about, excited about is for us to be a bit cautious in terms of how we use research and, you know, also when and what's applicable to our context. And I know Carly's going to shed more light on this. So hi, Carly, how are you? I'm really well, Emily. Thank you. How are you? <laughs> How was your day? Honestly, pretty crazy. Um, I think school, <laughs> schools are in extraordinary times at the moment. Yeah. And uh, feeling the pressure and the strain of multiple COVID cases amongst students and, of course, staff as well. So, yeah, I'm not going to lie to you, Emily. It's been a tough day. And I think it's the yeah. case for all school leaders and all school teachers across the country. I think we're all struggling a little bit at the moment. But I'm, doing our best. I'm just so grateful for you, you know, to utilise your time because I know how stressful it is for head teachers. Um, and, you know, especially with the context of COVID and now this petrol shortage, I saw on Twitter that um, the school trip was cancelled because the coach didn't have enough, you know, fuel. Um, so it's we're seeing, um, you know, an impact on education from left, right and centre, whether it's COVID or whether it's um, petrol, because we had lots of lates today, in fact, from students because um, obviously there was lots of um, blockage due to people trying to get petrol at different ends. Um, so that was interesting. Yeah, see, I am. Um, so I, yeah, so I'm one of these... Yeah, sorry, sorry, sorry. I was just going to say, I'm one of these really strange people who I no, can't no, no, deny. No. I, I deny the existence of certain things. So this weekend, I've suddenly decided yeah. that there is no fuel shortage that I am enab- I, I am going to acknowledge in any shape or form whatsoever. Um, because I've only got space yeah. in my brain for so much stuff. And at the moment, I can only deal yeah. with the COVID uh, situation. So yeah, I'm going to, I'm putting the whole fuel shortage thing aside. And hopefully it will be, <laughs> I'm, I'm hoping that by midweek or later in the week, it will all be okay. And then nobody will have any shortage of fuel. And I know that myself, I've got about a week's worth of petrol. So that's all I'm thinking about right now. There you go. <laughs> oh, that's good. <laughs> oh, no, thank you. Thank you. And um, for those that, you know, um, I know a lot of people know you, but for those that don't, would you be able to introduce yourself and tell me more about, your, your you know, your um, 
career in education because you know um i really look to women leaders especially due to joining women ed and to see you know a female head teacher um it's just phenomenal especially in light of what a lot of head teachers are going through it just shows you know women rock um so yeah so if you could just shed um a light further in terms of your career in education um yeah that would be great okay um, so I'm I'm from Corby in Northamptonshire and uh, the school where I'm currently the head teacher is Lodge Park Academy in Corby. So it's in my hometown. Um, I've been an educator for um, 20 plus years um, and always worked in Northamptonshire schools. I've um, really, um, really benefited a lot actually from Women Ed, um, certainly around about um, 10 years ago when I first sort of became aware of women ed it was something which really really supported and helped me and um, and the networking that was available through women ed has been extraordinary for me I've made real lifelong friends through women ed and also uh-huh. you know really benefited from that so yeah no I do agree that's been a really sort of influential part of my life um but the, I guess for me the the key thing is I've I've been very kind of grounded in my county and in my hometown um, I've done a lot of work um, around the edges of school as well. So um, organising wow. education conferences and all sorts of things in my own county in Northamptonshire, because I feel really strongly that, um, you know, we've kind of been overlooked as a county for, for lots of years. And there's lots of fantastic things that are going on in, in Northamptonshire schools. Um, but for me, you know, the biggest thing in my life at the moment is my school is Lodge Park Academy, which we've just got out of special measures. Um, oh, wow. And um, it's it's a really, really fantastic school in a brilliant community that actually has gone through some really, really tough and turbulent times in the past couple of years um, and is now at a point where we're really able to, you know, um, kind of um, spread our wings a little bit and, and fly. And I'm, I'm really enjoying seeing staff and students really um, enjoying being in a school where they feel safe and where they feel happy wow. and where we're really focused on learning. So it's a real privilege to be the head teacher there. I absolutely love what I do. And like just listening to you, I can hear such resilience, such strength and a lot of passion as well. And before we get into, you know, sceptical research, just from what you've just said, how did you get your school out of special measures? Because, you know, (laughs) I feel like a lot of what we see on Twitter, for example, is a lot of the glory side, you know, look at this resource or look what I've done today. So it's nice to hear, you know, these honest sort of circumstances. And yeah, so, you know, how did how did you get from? you know, your school out of uh, special measures? Because I know that must have been quite um, stressful. Stressful, yes, because of course yeah. I didn't expect a pandemic during uh, the time. <laughs> yeah. So I joined Lodge Park Academy two years ago t- in September 2019. But I think the first thing I would say is there are no easy answers to that question. It's not like there's a magic formula for getting a school out of yeah. special measures. And the second thing that I would say is that I, you know, I didn't do it alone. Um, I was really lucky to have yeah. fantastic executive head teacher Bob Sloan, um, who worked really closely with me throughout that time, and the whole team at Lodge Park Academy, and indeed in the trust as well, um, were really, really supportive. But I think ultimately what we did was, um, if I had to sort of boil it down to anything, I think we made the place safe by making sure that there were really clear routines and structures, really high expectations of students. You know, we believe very highly in our young people and we know that they can do things that perhaps in the past people didn't believe they could do. Um, So we were quite tight. You know, we're we're a warm, strict school and we're really warm, really, really warm, but also really strict. Um, So we have really clear routines and structures um, and we're really consistent in our approach to those. And that's made a big difference in sort of stabilizing behavior 
um, initially because that was one of the main issues. Um, but then obviously really focusing on allowing our teachers to be um, kind of, you know, really real professionals and really trusted in their classrooms and, and, and subject experts wow. and really um, allowing them to have the space to be able to engage with, um, you know, research and evidence on, on pedagogy uh, and their subjects. Um, I think that's been really important for people to feel like, you know, they, they are trusted. Um, but I think then the yeah. other thing is really the culture of our schools. So we really try hard to make sure that we've got a real culture of belonging. We have this thing called LPA spirit, which is about being the best version of yourself. We have lots of fun. Um, we really have great relationships. Um, we're not afraid of anything. And so we've really tried to create a culture where I hope that students and staff feel very safe and feel like they belong and feel like that we're all rowing together towards, you know, our, our bigger goals. So like in a nutshell, Emily, <laughs> that was kind of what we did. But um, I think that in no way encompasses all of the incredible hard work um, from extraordinary two years that we could never have predicted. Wow. And it just sounds like, you know, where you, you know, worked in a team, but you've got a strong leader because I've been in a situation whereby the leader isn't that strong nor present. So, um, yeah, so that's a tremendous achievement for you and also your team. So well done. Thank you. Um, I wanted to also ask, um, you know, just in light of your background in women ed and as a head teacher, what two tips, uh, yeah, so what tips would you give to, um, female head teachers or those that want to you know um, become head teachers and also what tips would you give to those leaders that are in special measures right now if you could share any pearls of wisdom from your own experience okay. wow um so I think for female head teachers or indeed no not even female head teachers but anybody any aspiring head teacher I would say don't be afraid to be who you are and that might sound really glib but what I mean yeah. by that is people in my career often said to me previously um, I don't think you'll never make it as a head teacher you can't be a head teacher because oh, yeah. you know you, you're too nice you're too soft you're too you're too lovely to everybody um, you know you've got to be really hard you've got to be really tough to be a head teacher and I just always felt like I you know I feel like I'm a very personable, approachable person. I'm really cheerful. I'm quite emotional. Um, and I, I don't think that's, that's a bad thing. You know, I don't think that's yeah. um, a weakness really. And I really like the fact that I've embraced that as a head teacher. It doesn't mean I can't be strong. I can be really, really strong if I need to, but at the same time, I'm not, you know, trying to put on a front or anything like that. So I would say, I guess specifically to perhaps, you know, aspiring women head teachers who think they have to perhaps fit a certain mold to be a head teacher. I would say, don't do that. I'd say you can only really be yourself. And then the second thing about, um, you know, coming out of special measures, I, I mean, I, I was really, really determined that I wanted to turn a school around. I actually wow. really wanted to make that kind of difference. But I think it takes a big, um, a big amount of courage to do that because it is, um, it is a bit of a career risk, you know, and a bit of a reputational risk to do something like that. Um, because, you know, you do hear all sorts of horror stories of, you know, head teachers and all sorts of situations where it's all gone really badly wrong. Um, <laughs> And I, so I think you have to be brave um, to do that. And that's wow. again, another another shout out to Bob Sloan as well, the executive head teacher, who's now moved on to somewhere else because he was the same. You know, he walked into that situation 
when it was um, really, really bad um, and, and put his career on the line. And then I did the same thing when I joined in September 2019. And we worked together as a team and with our incredible staff and students and, and managed to make a real, real difference. But I think a lot of people are scared of that. You know, oh, I best not go and work in a special measures school or I best not work in an RI school. And, you know, will I get another job after that? And, you know, well, no, not at all. I think if you go into those situations, then you go in to make a difference and you go in really determined mm -hmm. and you don't give up on anybody and you don't give up on the school. And then actually what you, you know, you do is you, you feel like you've, you've done something really worthwhile with your time. I mean, you know, it's not to say that people who are head teachers of good and outstanding schools aren't doing an amazing job. I know lots of them, they are doing an amazing job and, and they're not, you know, it's, that's not a breeze either. But there's something for me about going into a community that really, really needs help. Um, wow. And it has been destabilized and being able to be that sort of consistent, calm um, presence for them. Um, I've really, I've really loved doing that. I really, I really enjoy what I do and I'm, yeah, so I'm really, really privileged to have had the opportunity to do this, actually. Wow. You're just so, like, Carl, you're just so inspirational, honestly. <laughs> you're just so inspirational. And, you know, you are literally a woman that is determined and you didn't give up. You know, people talk a lot I'll about resilience. I'll tell you what, though, Emily, some days I feel like giving up, you know. So this is the truth. Wow. Is some days I go home and bawl my eyes out because it's all just so hard. <gasps> And I just think, oh my God, yeah. I'm not cut out for this. I can't do it. And then, and then I think, no, come on, Carly, you can do this. It's fine. Dig deep. And, you know, wow. and like everybody else in education, I'm not alone in this. Like everybody else, you know, we're going through difficult times and we have to be really resilient and just keep going, like keep chipping away every single day. And the thing about teaching that I love the most, the thing about education is, is the highs and the lows, you know, so in, in any given day, you can feel completely crushed. Like your soul can be crushed and you think, oh my God, I can't carry on. Wow. And then you know, two minutes later, you can have a moment of complete joy, you know, where you just think, oh, wow. there's nothing better in the world than this moment with this young person. Yeah. And this is amazing. And I think that's the thing in the end that keeps oh, us wow. going. It's this roller coaster of emotions every single day. And that uh, helps to keep you buoyant. It helps to keep you going. Because my goodness, if it was just all of the tough stuff all of the time, I don't know how anybody would do it. But luckily, we have the privilege wow. of working with young people who who are massively inspirational every single day. Wow. And uh, yeah, so Ben's just said, so Ben um, Newmark said, um, Carly says Ben is not listening, is he? Ben should be Oh, he bed. is. I'm, I'm poorly just so... with COVID. Ben, get to bed. <laughs> oh, Ben, I hope you get well soon. I'm a massive fan of Ben. So I'm just so, I'm just like, oh my God, Ben Newmark is listening to the show. But yeah, thank you for listening in, Ben. And he's saying that Carly certainly is strong. I think too often in education, strength is conflated with being mean. You can be really strong and kind. Carly gets respect because she is both these, those oh, things. that's very kind. Thanks, and <laughs> just listening to you, Carly, sorry, I'm just, you know, the show's all sceptical. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll get to that topic in a minute. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, just listening to you, Carly, I think you've just made me bold to be me because I think for so long, and I'm in this kind of pickle where but I'm very passionate about what I do, but I understand sometimes my passion can be quite annoying. And because I'm oh, quite, it's annoying for those that kind of want things to stay the same, but, you know, staying the same doesn't necessarily work to, you know, to a large degree. And I feel like I've got to that stage whereby I've tried to kind of hide or just minimise that, but there's something in me that kind of wants to roar, but... I'm silencing that roar. I don't know if I'm making sense here. That's all You're not I'm making sense. Don't, don't silence that roar, Emily. You roar <laughs> you as know. much as you want to. And also, don't worry about... I think people. I think a lot of people might find me quite irritating. I mean, I think I am uh, quite over the top sometimes. I'm very passionate about what I do. Um, I mean, some... You know, I can, I'm sure I can be 
<laughs> really, really tedious and, and irritating to some people because I go on and on about things. And but that's okay. That's me. That's who I am. You know. And you. So you should do that too. Oh, Don't hold back. You. Thank you so much. This is just, you know, insightful. Like, I'm actually going to reach out to you. Like, if you do any mentoring, I would love, love to be involved. Um, yes. Um, and another person, I can't pronounce her name, sorry. So, A, Kitely. Um, Carly's most definitely inspirational. She keeps us going every day. <laughs> L, her spirit. I'll pay you tomorrow, um, Andrea. <laughs> oh, definitely not irritating. Oh, thank you for listening in. Um, Thanks, Andrea. And I wanted to ask you, oh yeah, two questions. Just out of interest, I always like to ask head teachers this question. So what subject did you, you know, teach um, when you started off as a teacher? So I was um, an English teacher. I started off doing English and drama when I was an NQT. I moved away from drama a couple of years later and then uh, mainly just English. But I have also taught bits of other things um, like media and sociology um, and philosophy and ethics over the years as well. But yeah, I'm an English teacher by trade. Oh, I love that. I just love um, hearing, you know, the backgrounds of head teachers. And um, I know that, you know, you said one of the aspects of getting out of special measures was due to um, building a culture and improving behaviour. And when Barry saw that you were on the show, he was like, you know, ask her about her visit to the charter. So <laughs> how did the um, charter, um, what did you see the charter and how did that impact on, you know, what you might have brought to your school? Yeah, it was really influential on me, actually. Um, so the trust that I work for, the David Ross Education Trust, they did a visit early on in my first half term, actually. I was a head teacher. All of the heads went to um, Great, Great Yarmouth Charter Academy, met Barry and, and, and visited his school for the day. And what a privilege that was. Mm. Um, I think there were so many things that I took away that day. And, and, and some of them um, kind of really c- cemented certain things in my mind and helped me be more confident um, other things, you know, aren't as transferable. Um, and I think I learned that lesson the hard way. And Andrea, if Andrea Keatley, who's listening, will know that this, will know this and will laugh about it because I came back from um, charter the next day. I mean, buzzing, absolutely buzzing. I've just never yeah, seen anything yeah. so brilliant in my whole life. And then I was like, yes, let's do this. Let's do this. Let's do this. Um, and I want all of these things that I wanted to do at Lodge Park. And one of them, so I'm really, oh gosh, I'm, I'm really uh, exposing myself here. So one of the things was all of the kids at, at Great Yarmouth, um, they carry their bags in their right hand, I think it is. And they, they walk along, they trot along in their single file with their bags in their right hand. Now, all of our kids work, walk in single file and they do line up. So we're used to that, but they have their bags on their back. And it was just this really simple thing that if they're carrying their bags in their right hand, you're like, can you get through the corridors really easily? I don't know. Anyway, it just worked. and It, was, it just looked great at Yarmouth. At Great Yarmouth, yeah. and then the, the very next day, I was like, "Right, everybody, put hold your bag in your right hand." And all the kids just thought I was utterly crazy. And all the staff, <laughs> God bless them, you're all so brilliant. They were like, "Okay, we'll go with this, Carly. Yeah, we trust you. That's fine. Let's go with it." And I, I think by that. about the, by about morning break, it was really obvious that this was just the most ridiculous thing to do. Um, and it sort of taught me a really important lesson, really, about the transferability of, of certain things from one school to another, wow. um, and about purpose, not power. You know, it's really important to me that every decision that we make and every routine that we have has a very clear purpose. And actually, we've really, really thought that through and we've understood what the pitfalls might be as well. And that we explain it to students and we you know, help them to understand why we are implementing certain things. And, and that one, that particular strategy did, just didn't work for our school and that was fine. But there were loads of other things that, that did work. Um, I mean, certainly one of the most important things that I've taken from 
from Barry is is to be a sort of amplified version of yourself. You know, I think that's yeah. a really important thing to do in a school. It's something that I feel really comfortable with, um, but it also gave me the confidence to do that and not feel embarrassed by it. I say it to lots of other yeah. teachers as well to sort of be an amplified version of yourself because I think that's quite important really for engaging yeah. young people. Um, but, you know, the other thing is that, you know, the absolute relentless focus on, on children being respectful and polite and well-mannered. Wow. Um, and that's absolutely what we do at Lodge Park Academy as well with every single interaction with our young people. And it's, you know, it's not an overnight thing. It takes a long time to build that kind of culture. Um, I think I saw that so successfully done at Great Yarmouth Charter Academy. And it's what we're working on as well at Lodge Park. And it's just brilliant. And it makes for a very, very pleasant place to be as well. So you're in a school where children are really pleasant and polite and well-mannered and respectful to one another. Um, it makes everybody's job wow. easier. Um, so that's something that we really took away from that visit as well. It was a great, great visit. I absolutely loved going to that school. Fabulous. Wow. I love that and especially what Barry said about you know being that amplified version of yourself your your bigger self that's really worked for me because I'm naturally an introvert so you know I had to kind of amplify <laughs> who I am to really engage um students and one thing that I like about what you said was the fact that I don't think you realize that you said it is the fact that um you know you said to your students and staff members okay you want to you want them to hold the bag in their right side I think you said and your staff me member said okay I'll go with it because I trust you I think for me that just um highlighted how leaders need to have that credibility and you know that trust between them and the staff members otherwise what um you know new strategies that will that you want to introduce won't happen. So I think that was just um, beautiful. Yeah. To hear. Yeah. I think that's a good point. I think the other thing about that is as well is it also was an opportunity for me to show where I've got it wrong. So at yeah. the point at which I went, do you know what? This is crazy. This isn't working at all. I, I let everybody know and I just said, you know, forgive me. Uh, I've made a mistake here. Um, let's, let's ditch this idea because there are loads of other things that we're doing which are, you know, just as important. And again, everybody was really understanding. But I think to be able to be a head teacher and turn around and go, do you know what, I, I made a bad decision um, mm. and that's okay and I'm sorry and let's all move on is really quite a powerful thing as well because mm. I'm not saying that I'm infallible. I'm not saying that I'm always going to make the right decisions. I'm just saying I'm a human being who's just trying to make good decisions along with everybody else. Um, mm. I think that's quite an important thing for the culture that you want to create because you want people to be able to say sorry and I got it wrong and let's try again and do something different and that, that's an important part of what we do at Lodge Park now so I'm glad I did that. Wow that's amazing it just shows humility as well um, that that leads us really nicely into skeptical research because um, yeah so if you want to explain what you mean by skeptical research because in your bio it, bio, it says respectfully you know basically be skeptical of research and maybe if um because i've done it before i get really excited about a new thing but if i had taken the time to really digest and think about how i'm going to implement it and whether that's that strategy is actually right for what i'm teaching then mistake my mistakes wouldn't have happened um so if you could define what do you mean by you know skeptical research I think that the key phrase for me is to be um, respectfully sceptical. Um, and actually, as I explained when I presented a research ad a couple of weeks back, it's actually a phrase that comes from safeguarding, um, mm. which is, of course, the golden thread through everything that we do in school. And, and the, the, the idea of being respectfully sceptical in safeguarding is that actually, you know, it's important for you to 
kind of keep this scepticism of everybody around you because potentially everybody could be a danger or a risk to a child and that we mustn't just sort of, you know, just unknowingly believe everybody. Um, and I think it was a it was a serious case review, I think, at the time where it was actually a deputy head teacher um, had been guilty of, of really, you know, um, of abusing a child. And um, but nobody ever thought that this deputy head teacher could do that because nobody was kind of respectfully sceptical enough. They kind of just thought that this person couldn't couldn't do any do any wrong. And I really liked that phrase there. And I'm, I'm you know I think it's important in in safeguarding. But I kind of thought about it a lot over the years and thought to myself, well, actually, that's something which is quite um, useful to educators because it protects them. So if you are respectfully sceptical, I mean, not just of research but of everything and anything really. Um, it means that you can invest in something, but you can also hold something of yourself back. And it means that you can reserve judgment and be judicious. And I think that's really important in a in a profession where there is always a new bandwagon to jump on onto. And I think actually, if you just have that sort of if, if you are respectfully skeptical, what you're doing is you're creating a space for yourself to be able to say, you know, I'm, I'm going to hang back on this. And I'm going to make a decision when I've decided whether it's right for me or not. And when I say that, I mean, genuinely about whether it's right for your classroom, because I genuinely think wow. the teachers, especially, you know, they are the masters of their domain in their classroom and they deserve to be able to say, well, look, this works for me or this doesn't work for me. And I think where we try to Im impose upon teachers a certain perhaps, um, you know, type of pedagogy or something because it's apparently evidence-based or research-informed, I think that can really take away from the agency of the teacher. Um, and I, you know, I believe in professional trust and professional autonomy. So I think it's important that we ask our teachers to be respectfully sceptical, which means do engage, you know, do be respectful, do engage, do, you know, do invest, do read, do, do take it on. Um, but at the same time, um, don't do so in such an unthinking way. Uh, you know, make sure you reserve that mm. your judgment and keep your, your sort of professional um, perspective on things. Mm, I love that because um, there's been times, I think I've said it before, where I've been to a CPD event and I'm so excited. Yes, I'm going to use this activity and that activity. And when I, because I'm so excited and so buzzing with fresh ideas, I use it for the wrong you know, knowledge, if that makes sense. And then I'm overloading um, students' minds where they should be focusing on the knowledge because the activity doesn't necessarily match what I want them to kind of retain in terms of um, the knowledge. But if I had, you know, applied those principles in terms of what you've just said about, you know, safeguarding, then that mistake would have happened. Um, yeah. Well, we all make mistakes, you know, and this is the thing, isn't it? That when I look back over my 20-year career, um, there were undoubtedly times when I kind of fell headlong into something and thought, this is the next big thing. This is going to solve all my problems. Um, and I think we, you know, we're all guilty of that to some extent. And I don't think we should beat ourselves up about it. Um, but I think, you know, as you grow in experience in your role, you do start to um, recognize those mistakes and not make them the same way again. So when I think back, right, so when I was an early career teacher, um, back when I was an NQT in sort of 99, 2000, that was when um, learning styles and multiple intelligences, oh, yeah. and all that was a big, big thing. Now, you know, actually at the time, you know, we don't think about this now, but at the time that was um, really pitched as being evidence-based. It was, you know, research informed. So actually there was something in me and the people around me and my colleagues who thought, well, actually, if this is proven, you know, if this has been researched and, um, and this is based on evidence, then, well, that seems like a good idea. 
Um, and so obviously there, it was sort of full scale adoption at that point of, of these of this idea of, of visual auditory and kinesthetic. But I do yeah. remember at the time thinking, and um, I think my sister Esther is listening as well, and Esther and I worked together at the same school, so she'll appreciate this. That we, Ooh, at, the same time, <laughs> at the same time, we also were kind of cognizant of the fact that no matter how much this might sound truthy, um, actually, when you apply it in your classroom, it's really, really difficult because, you know, you can't possibly cater for all of these different learners with different learning styles at every, one, at every moment. Um, it just sort of didn't translate into practice. And I think that's something I'm happy to sort of come on to a little bit later, Emily, this idea of this, yeah. the big gulf between research and practice, which I think is something yeah. I'd, I'd like to discuss with you. But I think that my, my point at the moment is that, you know, we all make those kinds of mistakes. At the time, we might think we're doing something that's very evidence-informed. Um, but actually, it's only when you look back with, you know, hindsight that you look, you think actually that 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 hasn't that hasn't worked for me. But you know, that's still happening now. There are all sorts of things that people, um, you know, cargo cults and bandwagons that people want to jump onto. And that, to an extent, I, mm. I I welcome it. There's a little bit of me that thinks, well, you know, what new ideas are are always kind of helping us to feel refreshed and uh, rejuvenated. And there's nothing worse than being stale. So, you know, and trying out new things is really important. I think it's just important to have that, like I said, that space, that respectful skepticism where you go, well, actually, rather than just saying headlong, I fully, fully believe all of this, I'm just going to hang back a second and make up my mind when I've done a bit more reading and a bit more application in my classroom and decided what's best for me and my children. Oh, I love that, Carly. Before we go on a break, just listening to you, um, I'm going to basically confess something that I feel like edgy Twitter would hate. But more than often, I rely on my intuition than I do, um, I guess, research. Your research is really helpful, but I'd, I'd say 70% of my teaching is intuition. Um, how, how do you think intuition can come into play um, in terms of teaching Oh, I, I think that's a really important point. Um, and I think it, it's about the sort of um, the assumptions that we make about about research. So there's, there's, there's a big assumption that we make about evidence and research, which is that it should be the basis of all educational decision making. Um, mm -hmm. But actually, is it the only is it the only form of evidence that we wow. we can use to inform our decisions? Well, no, not really. What about our working knowledge? What about our impressionistic knowledge? And what about your experience? What about other things as well? You know, parental preference or community preference. There are all sorts wow. of other things that might impact on a decision that you make either as a school leader or as a teacher. Um, and actually, what I think is really important is that we start to build a a decision relevant culture. So what I mean by that is that we actually ask questions about the decisions that wow. we make. We don't just automatically say, well, everything must be research informed or evidence informed, because actually there might be other very, very valid um, avenues for us to pursue in terms of how we make our decisions. Um, so I don't think there's anything wrong with you know, using your intuition. And I know sometimes on Twitter, it gets a bit of a bashing, but my goodness, I think, you know, your, your intuition actually is based on your mental models. It's based on your knowledge. It's based on your working knowledge and, um, your, you know, all the knowledge that you've built up over the years, Emily. So it's not, it's not, you know, it's not arbitrary. It's not luck. Yeah. It's, um, it is actually your professional judgment, which of course should be trusted, um, because you've got all sorts of experience and you've, you've built up all of that. Uh, all of those mental models through all of the, you know, the knowledge that you've gained over the years. So why not? You know, I think we should be confident enough to say that. That's absolutely fine. Yeah. Thank you so much, Carly. And it just reminds, as you were talking, it reminded me of my friend. Um, she works, the community that she serves is um, very deprived. 
and she actually for history put um the classes in sets and we know about research about setting and i know a lot of people are against that but for her and her community it actually really worked and she saw massive improvement in her um results so what she said is that she used the research um in terms of how setting um is basically bad or negative but she um diffused that so for example um for example we know that um behavior can be an issue in terms of um quote unquote the, the bottom set but she said that she diffused that situation by putting a teacher that is very strong in terms of behavior management um there and different ways in which she kind of used research that show the negatives of um setting and she just kind of tried to um punch hole all those negatives by putting something in place and i thought that was actually quite interesting there um yeah um so before um oh did you want to say something carly sorry no no that's fine i just thought that was really interesting example um and i think you know you're right i think it's all about context um and some things that work in some places or on on some um evidence-based um practices that you know appear to be really successful in in one context doesn't necessarily mean that it will transfer and be successful in another context and i just think you know that's an important aspect of it so that you know you gave a good example of that i think thank you um yeah so we're just gonna have a um, short break and then um i am back to talking to carly on all things um skeptical research or respectfully skeptical research (laughs) need support with your phonics teaching did you know oxford university press now has three dfe validated programs to help you read write ink phonics floppies phonics and the brand new essential letters and sounds Essential Letters and Sounds will get all your children reading well, quickly, using phonics books you may already have in your classroom. Developed by the Knowledge Schools Trust English Hub, it's affordable, easy to use and makes teaching phonics with letters and sounds more effective. Whatever your school's phonics needs, Oxford has the solution. To find out more and receive support from your expert local educational consultant, visit oxfordprimary.com forward slash phonics. Do you struggle with people-pleasing? Is it a constant battle managing different and difficult personalities? Why not inspire, challenge, and empower your team through the Mal CPD Essential Coaching Skills for School Leaders course, or gain practical skills to become a strong and compassionate leader through the assertive leadership and the emotionally intelligent leader courses. All Mal CPD courses are accredited by the Institute of Leadership and Management. Find out more at www.malcpd.com. Every teacher loves stationery, right? Imagine getting a selection of fun, beautiful and unique stationery items designed and selected especially for teachers delivered through your door every month. You need to check out teacherslovestationery.club. I'm always so excited when the box arrives. It's such a treat. My Teachers Love Stationery Club box is just a little treat to myself every month. It's always full of delightful and surprising items, including some really good quality stationery brands. And because you never know what you're going to get, it makes it even more fun and special when you get it. Visit teacherslovestationery.club and enter the code TTRADIO when you buy your first stationery box to save £2 today. Teacherslovestationery.club Need support. 
and welcome back. So I've been talking to Carly about all things skeptical research and we've had a, an amazing conversation. Um, so welcome back, Carly. Um, my first okay. question to you is um, what constitutes research knowledge? Okay, so that's a really good question. Um, so the first thing that I would say is that any knowledge that you gain via research is, so none of it is value free. So this is the thing that I would say is pretty important about research knowledge. So, you know, any knowledge that you gain from reading academic papers or from conducting research or hearing people talk about research, it's really important to ask questions about whether or not they uh, that knowledge is perhaps politically or ideologically motivated or whether there are commercial interests. Um, and I think that, you know, that that's part of being um, respectfully sceptical as well, because you might think to yourself, well, I'm gaining a good deal of knowledge from this research or this evidence. And that's a good deal of knowledge that I can apply in my classroom or in my school. But if you don't ask yourself um, what the values have kind of impacted on that knowledge, then I think perhaps you're missing a trick. So I think that's the first thing to say about research knowledge. Um, I think the other thing about research knowledge, though, is that, it, you know, it's about the use. The For me, it's always about use. So I, I, you know, there's so much research and there's so much knowledge that are, that's there at our fingertips um, that actually it can feel really, really overwhelming. Um and what we have to do as a profession is filter all of that in a way which is relevant to our classrooms. Now, that's all well and good, except that obviously in that filtering and in that gulf between the sort of the world of the academic and then the, the world of the teacher is lots of those ideas or lots of that knowledge can become diluted or it can be oversimplified um, or it could be mutated in all sorts of ways. And that's kind of... Um, unavoidable really in some respects so I think the best thing again as as part of being respectfully skeptical is to is to ask yourself about knowledge in use so to ask yourself about what will what how am I going to use this knowledge in my classroom um, in the endeavor of teaching children um, and when you do that you can start to ask questions about um, well I think relevant questions about, uh, that are related to decision making as I said earlier sort of having a sort of decision relevant culture um, and what I mean by that is, you know, um, when it so so uh, let's put it into I'll, I'll put it into three into three categories. So routines, yeah. participation, and interpretation. Okay, so let me just explain what I mean oh, by wow. that. Then, so this is this is research yeah. in use. Okay, so um, when I say routines, what I mean by that is routinely when do you bring evidence into your decision making? So at what points in your use or your action as a teacher or a leader do you actually consider the evidence is it right at the start of the endeavor is it kind of halfway through when you realize you don't really have a research base for what you're doing because you've been working on your intuition is it afterwards when you're doing an evaluation of what you've done and you go well actually does it tie into some really seminal research 
that perhaps will make what I've done sort of seem even more credible. So I think there's about when routinely we put um, our, the research into our decision making. And then I think the next question about research knowledge, um, Emily, forgive me, but I think there's a lot of background noise where you are. I don't know if you've got a dog in the background or something. Yeah. He sounds gorgeous. Yeah. Um, I can hear lots of him <laughs> going on. So I just thought, I didn't wonder if you knew. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, yes. sorry. Yeah, oh, sorry. No, yeah. it's absolutely fine. Don't sorry worry about that. I, um, I, was, I muted myself, but yeah. No problem. <laughs> the second thing then is participation. So when you've got research in use and you're using research knowledge, so the, then the big question is, well, who, who is participating within the use of this knowledge? Is it the school leader? Is it the teacher? Is it the student? Or is it sitting still in the realm of the researcher um, themselves? You know, where, who is actually participating with this research knowledge itself? And then when you start to ask the question about who's participating, you also start to ask questions about, well, who holds the power? Okay, and who benefits from the use of this research? So I think there are important questions about the locus of power there too. And then the third part of research and use really, and research knowledge really for me is, is interpretation. And that is, you know, it, it, you know, again, it's not value free. How is this knowledge interpreted? How is it received? How is it reviewed? How does it work in your classroom, Emily, compared to my classroom? You know, and I think that's really important because none of this is sort of, a, there's no hard and fast rules to research. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing. And I'm obviously a big advocate of, of research-based practice or evidence-informed practice, whatever you want to call it. Um, and I do remember a time sort of before that, when we weren't really doing any of that kind of research informed practice at all. But I think now that we're in a position where we are using research and evidence a lot, there are big questions we need to ask ourselves about how it's interpreted, who participates in it, and where routinely we bring evidence into our decision making. So I guess that's kind of overall the way I'd respond to your question about um, research knowledge, Emily, because I just think it's more about um, research and evidence in use in the classroom to be honest does that make sense yeah that makes sense I love that because even just listening to you it's just made me see that I've actually just taken a board research but blindly and with you giving us those questions to think about and to really analyze the research um you've kind of armed us and empowered us that you know this shouldn't just be blindly followed we have to actually sit back and then filter out this research with those various questions that you've stated so thank well, you I never all, really thought about this yeah that's all part of being respectfully skeptical and I mean just to go back to what I was saying you know again I'm a big advocate of the research informed movement in our profession I think that's it's made yeah. it's, it's gained us huge um benefits um, and we wouldn't want to go back to anything else but I think it also um it, in itself in and of itself has a danger of of sort of being a bit of a bandwagon. And I, 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 I said in my talk a couple of weeks ago at Research Ed, you know, that we've almost got to the point now where, you know, if, you, if, if something is quoted in a, in a blog or a paper or something and, and you have somebody's name in brackets with a date after it, like as if that's just yeah. enough. Well, it will be believed then, won't it? Because it must be based on evidence. We've almost got to oh, that wow. point, really. And I wow. think that's really, um, you know, un unskeptical and 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 sort of too trusting really and I think also mm. oh gosh I'm probably going off on a bit of a tangent here but oh, no, no. you know it's one of the so things good. that I find is that when I'm looking at research papers which I don't do anywhere near as often as I want to because I'm just too damn busy but whenever I do one of the things that I notice is first of all that people don't really follow the down the little rabbit hole of different um, references and citations that are made and they ought to because often they're quite spurious 
um, and they don't really are, they're not really backing up um, accurately. And also, <laughs> I think this is really funny, but um, in lots of the research papers that I've read fairly recently, um, the, the the academic or the researcher appears to um, reference themselves a lot. You know, so oh, when you have a little yeah. look at the, the references at the end, you notice that they're referencing their own papers a lot. And I worry a little bit about echo chambers and I worry a bit about, you know, as um, always referencing the same sorts of people and the same sorts of thinkers. So I think that's an important part of being respectfully sceptical as well as going, well, actually, you know, this might well be all of these references to these other papers here. But am I going to follow all of these trails downwards and, and read all these papers? Well, probably not. So what am I, what level of knowledge here am I taking on trust um, yeah. And, you know, on, or, or which things do I want to pursue further? And I really have huge respect for those people who are reading research and papers and academic papers all the time and, and doing that kind of, you know, following down the rabbit hole, because I certainly don't have time to do that. But it would be fascinating to do that. And I think it's important because we do sort of we are kind of a little bit too trusting, I'd say, in some respects. Yeah, um, I definitely agree. I think the other thing is that um, the, there is a there is still I think, big gulf between um, research and practice in, in accessibility. I mean, there are yeah. all sorts of papers that are published all the time, often behind a paywall and often using language which is really obtuse and really isn't, you know, accessible to classroom teachers at all. And yes, of course, you know, then there are lots of us who will be kind of... Um, filtering all of that and trying to interpret it in some way or another. But as we know, then there are lethal mutations and there are all sorts of you know, issues that can happen there too. Um, but I just think genuinely we should be looking more at how we can make research more accessible to teachers. I think we've come a long way at it. I like to see the idea of action research and practitioner research in, in schools. I think that's really important and a, and a wonderful yeah. thing to be doing. And I'd like to encourage that as much as possible. Um, so I have a, you know, I have a little bit of a, a story about that in that when I am, um, I was the I was a deputy head teacher for teaching and learning in charge of teaching and learning for, yeah. for lots of my career at a big Northamptonshire secondary school lovely school brilliant job but wow. um, one of the things that I wasn't at that time was very research informed you know and and really yeah. I, I implemented all sorts of teaching and learning policies and practices and structures without looking at any of the evidence and research and that's staggering to me that really in a position of responsibility I could have done that. Um, yeah. But I didn't, I didn't really know any better. Um, and then luckily for me, my epiphany came when I went to um, do my master's um, yeah. in educational leadership and was uh, my eyes were opened and illuminated um, to all of the, the research and practice that are on leadership in particular, which was huge. Um, and it made me realize that actually there are so many of us in our jobs doing the very, very best job that we can, you know, working really, really hard, but that are not evidence informed. So I'm really pleased wow. that we've kind of really shifted forward as a profession. You know, I think it's a really good thing that we're now much, much more evidence informed. I think I just worry a little bit sometimes that we perhaps in some places take it a little bit too far and do things a little bit unthinkingly. Um, and I think that it's, it's just important to, like I said, remain respectfully skeptical because uh, I feel embarrassed mm -hmm. when I think back of, to all the things that I made people do um, when I was the deputy head in charge of teaching and learning. And I, you know, it, none of it was particularly evidence based at all. It was more, it was more on sort of, well, I guess, you know, it was about government initiatives and doing doing what the, you, need, you felt you needed to do for Ofsted and all sorts of other yeah. um pressures and, and priorities that come into play then and which is another reason why research and evidence is a really good kind of anchor um, and it helps you to be able to filter out all of those other pressures as well so that's all another good thing about research and evidence oh I love that thank you um Carly because as you 
what from what listening to you it's literally all about balance you know and just to kind of really just sit back and see will this work in my context how will this be translated um yeah because as we know research has been good and it's actually saved us some time you know we've got some time back um as teachers due to things such as um market for example because we can see you know through the education endowment foundation there um research papers show that especially on feedback that marking classwork isn't necessarily beneficial so it's about making it concise it's about making it um impactful and actionable as well so that's also helped in terms of my marking policy for my department um so it's not about marking for show so there's different ways in which marking i mean not marking but research has helped and i think one of the game changes in terms of research is actually giving teachers their time back and focusing on what matters and what will bring the most impact um yeah um, my next question carly is um should research always inform practice? I think you have touched on that, but I don't know if you want to. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I yeah. think it should. Um, I think there's no reason why not. Um, but I, I, as you said yourself, I think it's also worth um, thinking about what other sources of knowledge you can draw on too. Um, yeah. And and I don't think we should be kind of ameliorating the, the, the role of the teacher and their experience in any of this. I think they're just as important as any research and evidence. Um, so I think you're right about balance as well. I think it's a balance in all things. Um, I think um, the other thing about it is to think really carefully about um, the purpose of research. Wow. So again, if you think about it in maybe three ways again as well. So um, strategically, so if, is the first example, like research can strategically be used to um, to roll out particular programs um, and perhaps it's because certain people who are in power um, or have a different a particular political motivation or even profit goals uh, want to sort of use um, evidence and research strategically to for their own aims their yeah. own goals um, so you know I think we need to think really carefully about that sort of strategic purpose or perhaps you know it's that actually they've rolled something out or they've invested heavily in something and actually what they need to do is then confirm justify or sort of elaborate decisions that they've already made so again that's a strategic use of research which is fine I'm not saying that's a wrong thing but I, I really want us all as, as as professionals to question the research and think about what the purpose is so that's potentially one purpose um, but then there's also the sort of instrumental purpose as well of, of, of research, which is, you know, to solve a problem. And, you know, we, yeah. there's a lot of talk at the moment about this idea of, of school leadership in particular being about these persistent problems and that actually to solve a problem. We need to make a decision and to make that decision, we need to be able to have looked at the evidence. And that's a sort of really instrumental wow. look at research, which again, I'm not saying it's a bad thing in any shape or form, but ask yourself when you're, perhaps engaging with research, is it because you have an instrumental purpose? Is it because there's a problem that you need to solve with the research? Or potentially, is there a different kind of purpose? So the third example I'd give really is sort of, um, I, I guess you'd call it conceptual or ideological purpose of research, really. Yeah. Just about the idea of like gradual shifts in uh, in people's minds or you know gradual shifts in decision makers awareness and orientation so you know if you think a little bit about the way which we have now really seemed to be more or less adopting of cognitive science in learning um 
at the moment. I don't think that's been like one big hammer blow. I think that's been like a gradual shift. It's been quite conceptual. You could also say it's been quite strategic and been part of sort of um, the aims of, of certain, you know, powerful people in education, potentially. You could argue that that's part of sort of, um, you know, former schools minister Nick Gibbs um, purpose really potentially and again I'm not I'm not yeah. questioning it and saying it's bad I just think it's important to recognize that there are these different purposes for for research um, and I think you know that gradual shift in perception is a, is overall I think a good thing in our profession um, in particular when you relate it to research itself the fact that we are a more research informed profession now is a good thing and that hasn't happened overnight i think that's happened gradually over the, for me anyway it's happened also over the last 15 years um and i definitely can see that we've gained from it and um, and have benefited from it over that time yeah i agree because i definitely gained from you know the whole cognitive science movement because of my pgce i never studied about how the brain works and how memory works and it came at a really good time where there was um, a lot of gcse reform so i don't know what it's like in english or other subjects but in history certainly because i uh i teach history um it, it's just so much for kids to remember in comparison to the old um legacy paper and you know, a lot of teachers were thinking, how on earth are students going to retain all this knowledge? They see about three papers, there's no coursework, and it's just so much more knowledge for them to remember. So when, you know, um, the whole research ed came about and when the whole um, cognitive science movement um, came about, um, that was really a godsend, I would definitely say, in terms of, okay, how can I refine my practice to enable my students to remember more? Because in honesty, for old legacy paper, students could get away with just cramming and they could get a decent grade for that. But there's no way you can cram the new, you know, spec um, because it's just so much knowledge. Um, so, uh, yeah, that's one way in which research has um, certainly helped, especially cognitive science and retrieval practice and those methods yeah i mean yeah. i would obviously I'd, I'd agree and i think you know mm-hmm. there are there are lots of things to gain from from looking at learning in that way of course but i also just think you know we also should remain respectfully skeptical and you know in 20 yeah. years time in 20 years time when we look back on the seminal papers of today will we still agree that they are you know yeah. the the right way of doing things perhaps not and i think you know th- yeah. what we know is that you know, our, our own learning and research continues to grow and develop and, and quite rightly. And so, you know, again, creating that space for yourself to be a bit sceptical is quite important because there are always new things to discover and new things to learn. Um, and wow. I, you know, I feel like, for example, let me just give a really, really quick example, cognitive load theory. I mean, I'm in no, yeah. in no way am I an expert in cognitive load theory. There's millions of people who know loads more about it than I do. But I think it's an interesting one and I know enough about it to know that I have some skepticism about it. I think it's, it, it uh, shines some really important light on how children learn or how people learn that I think can be really, really useful to us. But I think it has limitations yeah. as well. And I think that also, um, you know, again, I'm, I'm not an expert in it by any means, but I was reading fairly recently that um, I think it was Sweller's more recent paper that he was talking about the fact that there is limitations in terms of considering the emotional load of other wow. learners as well whereas that wasn't really in the sort of initial kind of uh, conceptualization of cognitive load theory and I mean I'm, I'm probably I'm massively massively simplifying it there and again there'll be people who know loads more about it than I do but I just think that's an interesting little example of of how you know actually over the years um all of our our, our big kind of concepts to do with learning and remembering 
you know, will change um, in some shape or form. I mean, they might have sort of elements of them that remain constant, but there will be also sort of new lights that can be shed and there'll be, you know, new um, insights. And I think that's, that's, that's the brilliant thing about human beings and learning and, and I, I'm really delighted and pleased that I'm part of a profession that would embrace that kind of thing. Um, so, yeah, I think just keeping that respectful scepticism is a good a good idea. It kind of protects you from um, running headlong into something and then feeling a little bit foolish afterwards when you perhaps realise it's been disproved or can't be replicated and, you know, that kind of yeah. thing. Oh, I love that. Thank you. And I've never heard of um, the emotional low. So it's something I'm definitely going to um, look into. That's really interesting. Um, and something that in terms of us, you know, always learning something that I said to, you know, one of my colleagues is that we expect students to read around their subject and to, you know, read more um, outside of school. Um, and therefore, as somebody working in the history department, I expect you as well just to, um, you know, keep up to current with the latest research or the latest form of um pedagogy not that we'll all we'll use them all you know straight away but it's just nice to keep up to date with the latest um discourse because we might not use it it might not be applicable in our setting but it sometimes can as you said before inform our choices and our um decisions um before we proceed with um, the last two questions, I just want to pass over to Gail Glenn for the latest educational news. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News. This is your latest Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glenn. According to a report in the independent newspaper, Keir Starmer, leader of the Labour Party, has unveiled plans to remove the charitable status of private schools if Labour wins the next election. During the second day of the party's annual conference, the Labour leader said that he could not justify the charitable status enjoyed by the fee-paying institutions. Mr Starmer stated that private schools will be taxed £1.7 billion to fund improvements to the country's state schools if Labour wins the next election. Sir Keith said Labour wants every parent to be able to send their child to a great state school, but improving them to benefit everyone costs money. That's why we can't justify continued charitable status for private schools. Labour's Deputy Leader Angela Rayner added, Private schools shouldn't get a tax break. Labour will tax private schools and spend the money on helping the kids that need it. In Wales, latest figures show a spike in Covid cases among the under-16s. Denbyshire schools have seen more cases in the first two and a half weeks of this term than the whole of the last academic year, according to Mr Hilditch Roberts. He said, they're at breaking point. They are understaffed. They cannot get cover from agencies anywhere across North Wales, more or less. We are not able to supply Welsh education in some areas because we can't get staff at short notice. 
Education Minister Jeremy Miles said case numbers should be viewed in the context of a successful vaccine programme. It's changed the balance, the balance of harm as we call it, and we're very clear that the best place for our children, young people to be, are in school, in a safe environment, being able to learn with their friends. This has been your daily education news briefing. And welcome back. Um, so I've been talking to Carly about sceptical um, research and it's been such an insightful conversation about, you know, safeguarding what, um, safeguarding ourselves from, you know, making wrong choices and implementing it right, I mean, wrongly in order to avoid, you know, dilution of the research or mutation, etc. So I do have more questions for Carly because I'm just learning so much on this. And my next question, Carly, is what are the implications of research-informed practice? What are the implications? Well, I think, you know, um, to go back to what I was saying before, the implications are... The, the implications that are negative, potentially, are if people um, take on take on research in an unthinking way and don't think about where in the decision making that, um, you know, that research should come. And I just, I just, I, I think I, we, you know, we're potentially on the verge of that happening in lots of areas in education. So that's something to sort of try and avoid. But the, the good implications, of course, are that we, um, we are drawing on more knowledge um, to be able to make more sound decisions. We are making what we call best bets you know, we can't ever have a perfect solution to our persistent problems. Um, so if we are looking at a wide range of research and evidence and then we're making sort of really well-informed decisions and choices, that can only be a good thing for the profession and for our young people. So, you know, I think overall there are net positive and negative implications really, but overall mostly positive. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much. And then my next question is why your best best bet is to remain respectfully sceptical? Um, do you know what? I think um, it's probably a really good way to end, actually, Emily, because it's um, it's yeah. about um, self-preservation, I think, in the end. Yeah. <laughs> and what I mean Definitely. by that is, you know, we've all... we've all got a role that we play in our schools. Um, and, I mean, call me crazy, but I think it's really important that you prove as a professional, that you are somebody who is considered, um, who is balanced, who weighs wow. things up, who looks at a range of, of, of evidence and research and who, you know, isn't sort of so doggedly ideological that actually can look at all at things from all angles. And that's the great thing about research and evidence is it allows you to look at these persistent problems of schools from a range of different angles. Um, you know, and I think that's why being respectfully sceptical is important because it allows you to do all of that in, and then and, and retain your integrity, um, yeah. not to make a big fat fool of yourself, you know, because you've rushed headlong into something um, and not thought about it carefully. You know, and actually, I can't tell you how important I think that is because the decisions that we make, particularly as school leaders, the decisions that we make impact on young people's lives. Yes. Now, for me, like that, that's just such a responsibility and so therefore of course we yeah. should consider all of the research and evidence so that the decision making is as robust as it possibly can be knowing that it can't be perfect of course 
that actually if we are drawing on really um, good research and evidence and making those best bets, then I think that we can sleep at night knowing that we've, um, you know, we've done the best by our young people. And, you know, more than anything else, we have to keep the young people that we serve at the heart of everything that we do, which going back to really a, a really early point that you said, Emily, as well, which is also about trusting ourselves as professionals in that sometimes mm-hmm. it might be that we're looking for other sources of knowledge wow. um, that isn't just research and evidence that might well be our impressionistic knowledge. It might well be our experience. It might even be our intuition. You know, there is, I don't think there's anything wrong with that whatsoever because actually what it does is it elevates the status of teachers and leaders in our profession. And I honestly think in this, certainly in the context that we're in now, that, that there's nothing more important than that really. Because, you know, we've been through a really, really tough 18 months where actually the profession in some respects has been, you know, really diminished, I think, by from certain quarters and certain commentators. Yeah. And, you know, I think we need to sort of stand up for ourselves as a profession and, and, and say, well, actually, no, you know, there's, there's, there are really robust decisions that are taking place in our profession. We're making really ethical decisions within our profession. We're working together collaboratively. Um, and, and, and that's something to really shout about and be proud of. Um, and, ultimately more than anything else as long as we are keeping young people at the heart of what we do and I don't think we can go wrong oh I love that what a lovely way to end Carly you've been so inspirational and just a touch on what you said I think as well um being respectfully skeptical as well it helps us to safeguard what we actually do well because sometimes we could compare I don't know what we see in another school or what we've read and feel like actually it doesn't it's it's not that great, but it it works perfectly fine. So sometimes it's it's about you know safeguarding what is going doing well in um, schools as well. Uh, I just wanted to say thank you so much because I know you had a really busy day. Um, That's okay. It's been it's been a real a real pleasure. It really has. So thank you so much. I mean, I think I just want to sort of add that everything that I've said tonight is just you know entirely from the perspective of somebody who's just working really hard and trying to do the best job that they can. You know, I'm not an expert. Um, there are a million other people in this profession who can talk about evidence and research probably far, far more authoritatively than I can. I just wanted to sort of try and offer, I guess, a, a real life head teacher's perspective on it all. Um, you know, but um, by no means am I saying that what I've said is 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 correct. Um, there are lots of other people who have different views. But I think, you know, if you can remain respectfully sceptical, um, that, that's a good thing. You're right. I think you're right about saying that it safeguards what we do well as well, Emily. I think that's a really, really good point to make. So keep listening, everybody. Keep reading. Keep being respectfully sceptical. You know, just try and take in as much as you possibly can so that your decision making can be as sound as possible. And also, Emily, if I can just really just say thank you to a few people, that'd be great because oh, no, my, no, no, res- my research journey, that my journey is sort of to become a research informed practitioner hasn't happened by accident, really. I think it's happened through the influence of a lot of really incredible people. So firstly, Esther, Esther Gray, my sister, who actually was championing research and evidence in her school years and years before anybody else was. Um, And so that was really influential to me. Um, But also I'd just like to pick a big shout out to a couple of other influential people to me. So Jen Barker um, at Ambition Institute, Tom Reese at Ambition Institute and Catherine Morgan as well. So people who in my life have really... They, what, they, the, what those three people do is they put things in front of me. They say, read this paper, Carly. Oh, you'll be interested in this. Um, this will work oh, wow. really well. To feast. And, I, and isn't it great that we have people around us who will yeah. be thinking of us and say, and they'll know that we're busy. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but they'll say, oh, you know, this might be something really great for you, for you to read. Um, so I'm really grateful to those those three people for who continually put um, particular 
um, papers or research in my way. I also feel really indebted to the edgy Twitter community. I'm a big, big fan of edgy Twitter. I love all the blogs at the moment. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm really grateful to people like Matthew Evans as well, who you know continues. Oh, sorry, Matthew Evans. Uh, yeah, I can hear you. Matthew Evans and, and Joe Kirby and people like that who are continually sort of pushing us to think carefully about um, about research and in particular in school leadership. So I'm just grateful to all the people around me, really. So I don't know if anybody can hear me, <laughs> but I can't hear Emily. And I think there's other people who can't hear you too, Emily. So um, if anyone can hear me, I just want to say thank you very much for listening. Oh, yeah, so people can hear me. Emily, I don't know where you are and why we can't hear you. But we. Um, but thank you so much for having me on your show tonight. I really, really enjoyed it. It's been a great pleasure Back to talk to at you. ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.